Good morning. If you uh, would hang on to your bulletin and, and stay there at Psalm 34 or have it open, have your Bible open there, I'm going to be referring to Psalm 34 uh, all the way through. But before I pray and, and we begin, um, two announcements. One, I meant to tell David that Men's Bible study will be at my house this week. I think Jim will be out of town, and uh, that's 110 Woodcliffe Circle. Anyway, email me if you need to know where it is. Uh, and I think David will probably send out something later this week to remind you. But Men's Bible study at our house, Thursday, 645. Um, and there could be moon pies involved <laughs> if I don't eat them all before then. Okay, the second thing I wanted to let you know is um, I'll be sending out a letter to you all on behalf of the session uh, early this week, both by email and uh, snail mail, um, just giving you an update on uh, the new budget, the budget for the coming year and um, some of what the session the elders have uh, been doing and working on uh, in relation to our new budget. So. You want to keep your eye out for that. Uh, and then the, we will have a, a time on August 12th, a congregational meeting, so that uh, you can ask questions and, and um, understand a little bit better what the letter is about. So stay tuned for that. It's, it's good news. It's, it's fun stuff. So back to Psalm 34. Um, before we dive in and, and I pray, I want you to uh, do a couple of things just in Psalm 34, either on your bulletin, in your Bible, wherever you feel like uh, writing. One is to kind of draw a line between verse 10 and verse 11. Um, psalm 34 is actually an acrostic psalm. There are about nine of them in the Psalms, and they follow the Hebrew alphabet. So each line starts with uh, a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This was used to help uh, people memorize these things, but um, but the best way to to section off and divide up the psalm is between verse ten and verse eleven. The first ten verses are um, a song of praise to God for His goodness, and the last half of the psalm is a sermon um, about practicing the goodness of God. So uh, that's kind of how we're going to divide it. And then here's the other thing I want you to do. Circle four times the word good is used. Um, verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. And then in verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then verse 12, that he may see good. And then verse 14, turn away from evil and do good. Um, those four instances of the word good are right in the heart of the psalm, but they're divided in the middle. Two of them belong to the song of praise about God's goodness, and two of those uh, instances of good belong to the sermon about practicing goodness. So that's just to kind of help you get a little bit of a a grasp on the psalm. 
Let me pray for us and we'll dive in. Lord, you are good. And all that you do is good. Apart from you, we have no good thing. But with you, the psalmist says, we lack no good thing. So we ask this morning that you would give us an overwhelming sense of your goodness. As through your word and through the table, we taste and see the goodness of our King, of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us and gave himself for us. Amen. This week, I ran across the story of an English missionary named Alan Gardner, who in uh, 1851 traveled with six other missionaries to open up a new mission field in Argentina, South America. Before they could reach their destination, they were shipwrecked on, if you look at the, the map, there's all kinds of little islands down there at the tip of South America, and they were shipwrecked on those islands, ended up uh, living uh, part of the time in the broken uh, hull of one of those, uh, of their ship as it was stranded on the beach. Um, and they had their supplies stolen many, many, many times by the natives. Uh, they had no gunpowder. It was lost in the shipwreck, so they couldn't shoot for food and, and hunt for food. Um, and over the course of six to eight months, they all slowly starved to death. Um, Alan Gardner was the last of those, and he witnessed the death of each of his fellow missionaries, and he died, they believe, on September 6th of 1851, because that was the last entry uh, that was given in the journal that he kept. Actually, several of the missionaries kept journals, and so when they were found, uh, six weeks after the last of them died, the rescue team finally arrived, um, they gathered these letters they had written and, and journals they had written and, and put together the story of what had, what had happened. Um, I wanted to I was just fascinated by this. I wanted to read you a couple of the entries from uh, Alan Gardner's journal. On September 4th, two days before his death, he wrote, Fearing that I might suffer from thirst, I prayed that the Lord would strengthen me to procure some water. He graciously answered my petition, and yesterday I was enabled to get out and scoop up a sufficient supply of water from some that trickled down at the stern of the boat uh, by means of using one of my rubber shoes. And then this was his response. What continued mercies am I receiving at the hands of my Heavenly Father? Blessed be His holy name. September 5th, the day before his death, he wrote, Great and marvelous are the loving kindnesses of my gracious God to me. He has preser preserved me hitherto, and for four days, although without bodily food, I've had no feeling of hunger or thirst. In his journals, he described that he was so weak he could barely turn over. Um, the last thing that Alan Gardner wrote was on September 6th, a letter to a friend of his. 
He said, my dear Mr. Williams, the Lord has seen fit to call home another of our little company. The last of the other missionaries had died. And he wrote, yet a little while, and through grace we may join that blessed throng to sing the praises of Christ throughout eternity. He said, I neither hunger nor thirst, though five days without food. Marvelous, loving kindness to me, a sinner. Marvelous, loving kindness to me, a sinner. Alan Gardner never got to his mission field. He died far away from his family. He prayed for rescue, but they were six weeks late. And yet his journal is full of praise to God for his goodness. He would write Bible verses, and one of the Bible verses he wrote was Psalm 34, verse 10. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger. He knew what that meant. But they that seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. He wrote, Blessed be my heavenly Father for the many mercies I enjoy. And in his journal, we also found these words, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. I'm overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God? How could he say that? How can someone in those circumstances be overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God? Wouldn't you be over, overwhelmed with a sense of the abandonment of God? David, in Psalm 34, expresses this overwhelming sense of the goodness of God. In essence, David says in the psalm, God is good all the time. Because in verse, 30, uh, verse 8, he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And in verse 1, he says, I will bless the Lord at all times. God is good all the time. For Alan Gardner and for David, it was, forgive the cheesiness of this, but it was God's goodness that got them through life's badness. But as I've pondered on this psalm uh, this week, I, I wonder, isn't this what we most need to know and trust about God? That no matter what, he is good? A.W. Pink said this, the goodness of God is the life of the believer's trust. It is this excellency in God which most appeals to our hearts. The goodness of God is the life of the believer's heart. And wasn't it the goodness of God that Satan attacked in the Garden of Eden? God told Adam and Eve they could have all the fruit of all the trees in the garden except one. But the serpent slithered in and created doubt in their minds. Why won't God let you have this fruit on this tree if he's so good? This is, this is good fruit. Look at it. And, and it says in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve saw that the fruit looked good. Good for food. 
that it was delightful, that it was desirable. This seems good, so, so why would a good God keep it from you? Satan led them to doubt God's goodness. He essentially was saying this, taste and see that this forbidden fruit is good. Blessed are those who don't trust God. As I said earlier, I I think Martin Luther gets at the heart of this. He says, the sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ, and we must take matters into our own hands. That is so good and so real to to my biggest problem. I'm going to read it again. The sin underneath all our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ, and so we must take matters into our own hands. When God doesn't make sense, when I can't understand what he's doing in the world, when I can't understand what he's doing in our country, in my city, in my family, in my body, in my heart, I need something about him to trust. I need to trust that he's good, that he has a good purpose for all the things that I can't understand. Again, you maybe have heard the old gospel song, when you can't trace his hand, trust his heart. That's where David is. David was anointed as the next king of Israel. He had defeated Goliath, Israel's greatest enemy at the time. He had served faithfully God, served God faithfully in King Saul's court. He was loved by the people of Israel. They were writing top 40 pop songs about him. Yet he was on the run from King Saul himself, who was out to destroy him. And so and that's the context of this psalm. If you look at the preface of this psalm, it says, this is a psalm of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he, Abimelech, drove him out and he went away. Abimelech was, the, was a word that was a title of of ancient kings back then. This particular king was Ahish, who was the king of the Philistines. And so the context of the psalm is that just before, uh, well, let me kind of set it for you here. Just before this event that's talked about in the title of Psalm 34, um, David was on the run from King Saul and he went to the priest at the tabernacle. He was hungry. And so the priest gave him the showbread from the table in the tabernacle. And, and also, David was running. He had to pick up and leave uh, so quickly because Saul was after him that he forgot to bring any weapons. So he asked the priest, would you happen to have a sword or a spear that I can use? I have no weapons. You know, every priest has a sword or spear. What? And the priest said, no, I, I don't have anything for you, but... The sword of Goliath is in the tabernacle. This is the sword that David used to cut off the head of Goliath after he had stung him with a rock. And since that time, which was probably over a decade before this time, the sword of Goliath was in the tabernacle. 
as a testimony to God's faithfulness to his people. <laughs> David said, the priest said, well, I've got Goliath's sword. David said, that one is good, I'll take it. And so, David then, this is the strange part, David then runs to Goliath's hometown, Gath, to hide, to hide out from Saul. And so, this, 1 Samuel 21 picks up the story, and it's important for you to understand the context of the psalm. It helps us understand the psalm. It says, And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath, Goliath's hometown. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David is ten thousands. That was the top 40 song that was making the rounds at that time. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Ahish, the king of Gath. So apparently David thought, I'll go there, it's been long enough, hopefully no one will recognize me. But he gets there and sure enough, they recognize him. Um, he's a celebrity after all. So this was his plan. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate with, you know, scratching on the doors of the gate, and he let his spittle run down into his beard. He, he foamed at the mouth like a madman. And then Ahish said to his servants, Behold, you see, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? I've got enough crazy people in my kingdom. What are you bringing him to me? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so they sent him away. Well, this is like those movies where the good guy, you know the good guy is going to survive whatever problem he's in because he's got to live for the sequel, right? Um, and in those movies, it's always like there's some sort of something behind this that is always looking out for the good guy so that he can accomplish whatever good he's setting out to do to save whoever it is he's trying to save. In this case, there is someone who's looking out for this guy. And this crazy idea of, I'll just act like a nut, it worked. It worked. And he escaped. So, I tell you that story so that you can understand how desperate David must have been to run to Goliath's hometown. How desperate he must have been. He hid from one enemy, Saul, in the presence of maybe a worse enemy, the Philistines. David's in a, in a bad spot. But God delivered him, and so Psalm 34 is his response to the deliverance Spurgeon said that the first half of the psalm is a song and the second half is a sermon. And, and as I've showed you, uh, it nicely divides between verse 10 and 11. And, and so it, it seems that the first half of the psalm, David is saying, rejoice with me in God's goodness. And in the second half, he's saying, now learn from me about God's goodness. 
So let's look first at a song of praise for God's goodness in verses 1 to 10. There are, there are three uh, bursts of praise in these 10 verses uh, from David as he sings uh, praise for God's goodness. Oh, magnify the Lord with me in verse 3. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good in verse 8. And oh, fear the Lord, you his saints in verse 9. Three bursts of praise. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. It's as if that verse is a summary of the first two verses in which David says, bless the Lord, praise Him, I'll boast in Him, exalt His name. And so he just explodes with, come magnify the Lord with me. Magnify Him. This is, there's, Piper says there's two ways you can magnify something. You can magnify them like a telescope or a microscope. A microscope takes something that's very, 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 very small and magnifies it so that it looks a lot larger and bigger than it is. That's not how we magnify God. We magnify God like a telescope. You take something that appears to be very, very far away and very, very small and you magnify it so that you at least get some sense of how big and close it really is. You bring it up close and see how big it is. Magnify the Lord because of His goodness. That's what we do on Sunday mornings together. We praise Him because we prize Him. Then He says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. And uh, this little burst of praise This seems to conclude uh, several verses, verses 4 through 7, of a personal testimony. He's looking back at this time when God delivered him, and he's saying, I've tasted it and seen his goodness as I took refuge in him, and, and he delivered me. I have tasted God's goodness. And this personal testimony, I think we need to understand that there's a difference between knowing God is good, and tasting his goodness. Jonathan Edwards used the illustration. He said, there's a difference between understanding the definition of honey and tasting it. Honey is this kind of golden brown sticky stuff that bees make. So, ah, but have you tasted it? Have you tasted it? Um... Have you experienced, have you sensed God's goodness in your life? Someone said that everyone believes in God, but not everyone believes God. If you only believe in God, but don't believe God, you don't know God. Knowing that God is good, because you've heard it, Um, you can believe in, yeah, I believe God's good. But do you believe God? Do you believe that he's good, even when it doesn't look like it? Have you tasted it? Do you know it in your heart and not just in your head? Taste and see that the Lord is good. And then his third burst of praise was, Oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints. What? Fear him? That's odd. 
Is that a good thing? Certainly. I like this uh, definition that Pastor uh, Ed Hartman gave of fearing the Lord. He said, to fear the Lord is to take him seriously, more seriously than you take anything or anyone else. Fear the Lord, take him seriously. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack, David says. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Take God seriously enough. Take God at his word that if he says, no matter what it looks like, you will lack no good thing, that he means it. Oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints. Don't take the words of the serpent seriously who says you can't trust God. He's not really that good. Remember, you are the Lord's saints. You will lack no good thing if you seek him as your one thing. Take the Lord seriously, O you his saints. So, that's David's song of praise about God's goodness. But how can David sing so confidently about the goodness of God? Well, as we've seen, because God rescued him, God delivered him, God saved him. So, of course, he's going to sing God's goodness. But you say, yeah, but there are things that God hasn't delivered me from. How can I praise him for his goodness when he doesn't deliver me? Remember eight, uh, Romans 8, 31 and 32? What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God has delivered me from my biggest problem, which was the wrath of his rejection because of my rebellion, if he's delivered me from my biggest problem, and has met my greatest need, which was to be reconciled with God, if he is that good, and then promises in Romans 8, 28, that all things will work together for my good, because he's called me according to his purpose, then I can trust his good heart now. David was called according to God's purpose. And so David could trust that God was good to him all the time, no matter what. Even, David had to be thinking, Lord, didn't you say, I was anointed as the next king. Why am I taking refuge in the enemy's camp and having to act like I'm a nut to save my own life? But God was working all things for David's good. Again, uh, Pastor Ed Hartman helped me here. He says, Psalm 34 was written by the anointed king, David, who pretended to be insane to save himself from death. A thousand years after this psalm was written, the true anointed king came not to pretend to be something he wasn't, but to actually become what he was not, our sin. 
not to save himself from certain death, but to become our shame and our death, to enter in fully, not to pretend, but to actually become all our sin, all our shame, all our death, not to save himself, but to eternally save us so that today he could invite us to stop pretending and come back and allow him to fill us as alone he can. If you know this King Jesus, that you have every reason to praise his goodness, even when it looks like you have every reason not to. And then David, for the rest of the psalm, preaches a sermon about practicing God's goodness. And he says, uh, in verses 13 and 14, Uh, 12 through 14. Never mind. I'm stopping here. We'll finish this next week. Um, It's just too good. Um, It's just too good. How? How can I believe God is good when nothing looks good? It's because as, uh, as First Peter said in our reading this morning, Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. You can trust that the heart of God is good even in your suffering because he is a God who suffered for your greatest problem. And that is that you're a sinner. Deserving God's wrath and condemnation. And so, we come to this table to be reminded of this suffering God who is good and who has promised that if you would take refuge in him, all things will work for your good to his glory. Taste and see. Taste and see that this Lord, this God, is good and he can be trusted. Father, we, we come now to your table And we ask that you would help us to taste and see. Help us to taste and see that Jesus is good. Help us to know, and not just know, but to sense in our hearts that you can be trusted, that your heart toward us is good no matter what it looks like. We come to feed on you, Lord Jesus, because we believe, but we need you to help our unbelief. We know you say you're good, but we need you to strengthen our our understanding, our taste, our vision of your goodness. 
so that we can hold on to it all that much more. Would you do that now, even as we come, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.